There are many reasons I love communion. Uh, one of them is just as each person goes by and receives the elements, just thinking about we are certainly a broken, yet we are a hopeful people uh, because of Christ. And uh, to see us do that together is a great reminder uh, to each of us of what Christ has done. So very grateful for that time together uh, this morning. Thank you for engaging. If you would, turn to Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. As I've already read our passage, what I thought I would do, this is our third sermon in the book of Ephesians. I did the introduction. Monty did a phenomenal job last week of verses 3 through 6. But I thought it might be a great reminder for us if I pull back the camera, if you would, and reminded us of where we're at in the book of Ephesians. Because we only find the ultimate meaning of a text of Scripture when we see it in light of the other Scripture around it. So as a reminder, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and to a number of surrounding churches there in the province of Asia Minor when he writes this letter. And he wants to define for the believing community what the church is. Obviously, it's a the body of Christ, the Scripture calls it, where each believer is indwelt by the living Christ through the Holy Spirit. It is where the believers are to walk in the world. They walk and they do and they live as Christ lives. Some have called it the church is the church incarnate. That's who we are, the hands and feet of Christ. And in these first three chapters, Paul is writing, if you would, the theology of the church. What it is that the church must believe to be the church. Now, some Christians, I've heard them say, well, I'm not a theologian. I just love Jesus. But as soon as you ask them, well, who is Jesus? Immediately, they become a theologian. The question is not if we're a theologian, but how good of one are we, right? So we all are in some ways theologians. Also, throughout the book, Paul will powerfully demonstrate this truth. The truth that saved you is the same truth that will transform you. I didn't understand that growing up in church. I didn't understand that for years as a Christian. I'll say it again. The truth that saved you is the same truth that will transform you. Matter of fact, I'll tell you, that is your so what this morning. Like for you to not only know it, but to preach it to yourself. And as our text is going to tell us, sing it, sing it to yourself. No matter how good you are or bad you are, no matter if you're high, you got a spiritual high, you need to say it to yourself. Why? Because your pride will kill you. It's humbling. If you're in a spiritual low where you're not doing well, your shame will kill you. This message you preach to yourself then as well. So it is that Paul begins this letter with a song, a song of celebration. As Monty said last week, a song of praise. This a long one sentence from verse 3 to verse 14 of doxology, of worship or praises to God for all he has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. If I counted correctly, 
from verse 3 to verse 14, Jesus Christ is mentioned 16 times in some form or fashion. Paul is telling us everything that I'm singing about here, everything that I'm worshiping, everything that I'm praising has to do with in him. This is how we are to read these verses 3 through 14, starting with verse 3, and I put that in your notes. Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with, with, and then Paul begins, as we saw last week, he begins to list out what those things actually are. And Monty talked very specifically about election and adoption. And next week, we're going to talk about with inheritance of the saints. And this week, right in the middle, we are talking about redemption. So, this is our new status, our new identity, our new position before a holy God. This kind of passage brings great comfort. It shows us why we have great worth and value. Verse 7 through 10. Let's try it with me. Read with me. Verse 3, as I wrote in your notes, just so we can remember. Ready? Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with redemption. Well, yeah, I, 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 I cut it off. My bad. I wasn't a good teacher. I wasn't very clear. <laughs> with redemption. So we're going to look at redemption this morning, verses 7 through 10. Now, in our culture, the word redemption is, is not a very familiar term, but some of you are old enough as I am to remember your mom going to redeem the green stamps. Anybody remember that? Yeah, that's where I think I first heard of it. There's a theological definition that I laid out for you. Here in your notes, it says an act of God by which he himself pays as a ransom the price for sin which has outraged his holiness. It has this idea to purchase something and make it yours. Biblically, it is to pay a price to free someone from bondage. And in Paul's day, it was a very familiar term, meaning you could actually lose all you have in terms of money and possessions. You could, to, and to survive because you're bankrupt, you would have to sell yourself as a slave to someone. You would be indebted to that person. Now, in this, this picture of how this, this slave market idea worked, you could be a slave and someone could come along and pay a price for you and redeem you out of the slave market. So a very familiar term in Paul's uh, day. You could also work yourself out of slavery over time to pay your way out. Redemption was also a theme in the Old Testament. If you are familiar with the book of Ruth, a guy named Boaz is called Ruth's kinsman redeemer. It's a glorious idea of the nearest relative buying his kinsman's property, then he inherits the right to marry, as we know, Ruth. 
And I think the ultimate imagery in the Old Testament has to do with God redeeming his people, setting them free from the slavery they were in under Egypt. Here's what Deuteronomy 7, 8 says. It says, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So this theme of redemption, though, is also, in a, in a sense, woven in a fresh way in the New Testament. Jesus in Mark 10, 45 says, even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, there it is, for many. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own? And here's why. For you were bought with a what? Price. And then Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, as I lay out sort of this theological, but also biblical and even practical definition of redemption, the question in order for us to really get what God has done, not only for us, and as we're even going to see later, what he has revealed to us through what he has done for us is we must ask and answer the question, why do we need to be redeemed? What are we redeemed from? And the more we get this at a very deep, rich, internal level, the more we will sing, like Paul's singing, about the praises of redemption. What do we do? What do we need to be redeemed from? A ransom and purchase price assumes bondage and slavery. It tells us that we as humans, we as people are in a cruel captivity, if you would, to a taskmaster that is far worse than any kind of slavery we've known here on earth. The scriptures tell us we're in bondage to Satan and sin. And some of you are thinking, not me. Oh, yeah, you. The scripture says all of us are born into that bondage. Matter of fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus makes a very disturbing statement. Matter of fact, to think of it, Jesus made a lot of perfectly holy, righteous, disturbing statements. And this is certainly one of them. He says, truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Romans 6, Paul says that same imagery. Go read it. It's very powerful stuff. Matter of fact, I was remembering as I was studying when I was the chaplain of the Cincinnati Reds and Bengals, every Sunday we would have a chapel service, and we, the players, it would be in their weight room under the stadium, and everybody's sitting around, you know, on weight equipment or on the ground, and I'm doing the chapel, or I brought a chapel speaker in, and I taught on Romans 6 one day, and I looked right there in the front row to Dion Sanders, and I said, Dion, you're a slave. How do you like that? And he leaned from his elbow and sat straight up, and he said, explain, and I did. Hey, 
This is what the scripture say about us. Titus 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, if you don't believe me that we're enslaved to sin and Satan, let me give you what I'll call the liberty challenge, okay? Stop sinning today. <laughs> yeah, can't. It's a fight, and we're going to unpack what that looks like. The cruel bondage corrupts us, it defiles every part of us. It defiles how we think, our minds. It defiles our hearts, our wills, and our affections. Here's the hard truth about our enslavement to sin. Before Christ, you and I are in a co-op with another master, meaning your sinful desires and his are the same. Sin reigns king in every natural man who has not trusted Christ. Before Christ, your mind's in bondage to sin. Your will's in bondage to sin. Your affections are in bondage to sin. What you hate and what you love are different than God's. Paul understood this in Romans 7. Here's the Apostle Paul laying out this enslavement to us as, as, as hard as he is trying to walk with Christ and obey him. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. Can I get an amen on that? For I do not do what I want. Can I get another amen? But I do the very thing I hate. The hard truth, maybe the hardest truth to swallow, if we're honest with ourselves, is we like it. We enjoy our sin. Add to that, John 8, Jesus told the religious leaders of the day that they were of your father, the devil. So there's this bondage to both sin and Satan. And I think there's two basic ways this bondage plays out in us folk. One is, and I'll take these two characters from Luke 15. Um, the, uh, I forgot the name of that parable. Prodigal, the prodigal son, old biblical scholar Jeff. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Sorry. I know my Bible. <laughs> but there we have two characters that in some ways describe which way we lean. One is a rebellious rascal, right? Malicious. Uh, that's the younger brother who lives with no regret of, of living out the lust of the flesh. And then the older brother, I think, is a more refined slave that he can at times hide who he is. He traffics in this slave trade of pride and unbelief and self-seeking and independence and being self-made. That's how it plays out. And regardless how your sin or my sin plays out, and I'll give you a guess of which category I would fall into. I know it's probably hard to decide. Uno, right? Regardless of how it plays out, it's the same. It's sin against a holy God. So it is from this natural-born killer, we must be redeemed and liberated. 
what we need to understand, we have been redeemed at the moment of salvation, and we are being redeemed as we move toward eternity. So get this. At the very moment you and I came to Christ, instantaneously, we placed our trust in the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins alone. Redemption happened instantaneously. And you can be, morally speaking, the worst person ever on the earth, and the same thing is true about you in redemption that would be true of, for lack of a better name, Billy Graham the day before he died. Incredible maturity, incredible immaturity, but their status of redemption is the very same. Here's how Don Carson puts this. He said, God's purpose for the men and women he redeems is not simply to have them believe certain truths, but to transform them in a lifelong process that stretches toward heaven. This lifelong process of of positionally I am redeemed, but in practice I begin to live out that redemption over time as I grow. Man, if we, what I tell y'all, the same truth that saves you is the same truth that will redeem you. So as we look at, we've des described what redemption is, let's look at how it actually affects us. The first is the payment in verse 7, it says, through his blood. It's how we are redeemed. If you remember in the book of Hebrews, we read the passage, without the shedding of blood, there is what? No forgiveness of sins. Blood in the New Testament, if you would, is a word picture of Christ's death. Not just an ordinary death, but a sacrificial death, a sacrificial shedding of blood. If you think about it, in the Old Testament, nobody took a big stick and went up and hit the goat upside the head to kill it, right? What it they, they, they cut his throat so that his blood would shed. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 puts it this way. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter calls that blood precious, more precious than silver or gold. It's the hymn we sing, Oh, precious, oh, precious is the flow that makes me as white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is the ransom payment paid to the justice of God, that Christ died for God, that God required a ransom, and God himself paid the ransom via a substitutionary blood of his own Son, in light of that, here's what it means for us. You and I are liberated. You and I are liberated. I lost my place, sorry. We're liberated from the dominion of sin. And we've talked about and will talk about in Ephesians. Our, our, our series is called Life and Light. 
So it means we were dead and now we're alive. We lived in the kingdom of darkness and we've been transferred to the kingdom of light. In some ways, the king of sin has been dethroned. And look, he, he's not inactive, but all he can do is carry out guerrilla warfare. And we'll see what that guerrilla warfare looks like as we get to Ephesians 6. It's as if you have a new king who reigns that both liberates you, it liberates you from the power of sin, meaning you will never be perfect, but you have the power to say no, whereas before Christ, you didn't. And secondly, it, it liberates you from the penalty of sin. You and I will never be punished for our sins because Christ was punished on our behalf. Sin, Paul would say, is no longer master over you. So a great benefit is, or how, is through his blood. And the great benefit is the results, forgiveness of sins. In some ways, biblically, when we hear this word redemption, we got to have forgiveness of sins. The two go together. All our sins forgiven instantaneously at the moment of salvation. The theological word is expiate which is a blotting out or removal of sin, which results in a renewal of sweet, intimate communion with God. And we talked about this in the book of Hebrews. You remember there were two goats that the priests would go to. The first goat was a picture of a substitute for the sins of the people when he was slaughtered. And then the second goat the priest would go to was lay his hands on that goat. He would confess all the unknown sins, if you would, of the people that he wasn't sure of. Make sure you get them all in. And then what did he do with that goat? He sent him out into the wilderness. He was called the scapegoat. It is a picture that once the blood atonement takes place, first goat, our sins go far away, never to be contemplated or seen again. Second goat. One of the things that I had to drive in my hard head based on my family of origin was God is not going to get you. Yeah, you sinned. Yeah, I sinned. But he's not out to get you. He got his son on behalf of you. Micah 7 says, our sins are cast into the sea. Psalm 103 says, removed as far as the east from the west, that God chooses to remember our sins no more. Isaiah 44, 22 says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me. I'm not going to get you. Come to me. Come home. For I have redeemed you, Isaiah says. And you may sit there, as I know is very possible in your own shame, and say, yeah, but I, I don't deserve it. You're right. Absolutely right. But if we can't forgive ourselves, in some ways, 
we have a God complex. For why should we focus on what God has chosen to forget? Would we really say to God, how can you forgive me for that? When he said, clearly that I have, if you know my son, and we argue with him and refuse to believe. Maybe the greatest promise in all of scripture. So we have redemption. We have the payment, the results, and now the stockpile according to the riches of his grace. Verse 7 again. Now there's a difference between giving according to one's riches and from one's riches. Uh, Elon Musk, anybody know how much Elon Musk is worth? A bunch. Somebody said a bunch. Yeah. 200, I read yesterday, $251 billion. Let's say I was doing a new business venture, and I, I went to Elon, met him, and said, uh, Mr. Elon, I am the Honorable Reverend Jeff Patton. How are you? <laughs> I'm trying to raise $50,000 for a new business venture. It has to do with camouflage and killing wild turkeys. <laughs> I want to start my own hunting show. Would you be willing to invest in my company? Now, Elon, if he gave from his riches, he may write me a $1,000 check. But if he gave according to his riches, he would write me a million-dollar check. That's what the author is telling us here. When God gives in accordance with the riches of his grace, he gives from this, think about it, an unlimited treasure house or stockpile of nothing but pure, unadulterated grace. Paul asks the question, what if sin increases? His answer, you can't out-sin grace. Put all your sins together, all my sins together, all the sins of every person who's ever lived on the face of the earth. Pile them all together, add them up, and Paul's saying here, this stockpile is so deep and so rich, it will be more than all the sins. I use this word lavish. It's a word picture for the ocean waves. Look up on YouTube, go to the beach, and just watch the waves. He lavishes it on us in Christ. We are spiritually wealthy. So redemption not only is paid through his blood, not only does it result in forgiveness of sins, it comes from a stockpile according to the riches of his grace, and then there's some very practical benefits. The benefits in all wisdom and insight, verse 8. So one of the benefits of God dumping lavishly in some sense grace upon you and I as a Christ follower is what Paul tells us here is wisdom and insight. Wisdom, this word is in being able to see eternity and eternal things versus just the here and now. Think about it, if you've been a believer for any amount of years, before you came to Christ, it was all about right here right? What I can see, taste, touch, what's happening in my bubble. And when you become a Christ follower, God gives you this wisdom where you now can look up and see beyond that. And that's what increases as you mature. And to understand what it means to flourish as a human 
insight to live here in a way that counts in eternity. That's insight. It's another word for prudence, which is insight into earthly things and how it is that we live well here. So God gives us what we need to understand him and his word and to walk with him in the world to know in some ways how to take that lavish grace that he's graced us with and put it to work in the world around us. In some ways, the spiritual discernment to face, biblically speaking, any circumstance that comes in our life. One writer put it this way, those so equipped can discern the spirit of the times and walk well in them, confident in the ways of his or her God. What a great gift. What a great benefit of redemption. So, we have the payment, the results, the stockpile, the benefits, and fifthly, we have the revelation, which says, making known to us the mystery of his will. God's glorious redemption is not just so you and I can achieve moral transformation, although that's part of it, that we're transformed in a godly way, in a Christ-like way. But that's much too narrow of a focus. It is a total transformation, which includes our minds. God wants us to have a Christian worldview, a view of all of life that comes through this lens of redemption. Notice in verse 9 what God does. God initiates this. It says, he made known to who? To who? Who is us? Christ followers. Yes. What the Bible says about our ignorance and blindness makes this wisdom and insight that I just talked about and now this revelation 100% a necessity. Ephesians 4 puts it this way. It says, they are darkened when we weren't a Christ, darkened in the understanding, alienated from the life in God because of the ignorance that is in them. Colossians 1 says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. There's no doubt that the Bible teaches that part of our depravity, our total depravity in people is, is of our minds. And God here has initiated both life and light. So redemption, as I said, is not only God doing something for us, but it is God revealing something to us. Because we come into this world not as truth seekers, but the scriptures tell us we come into this world as truth oppressors. And so God starts to reveal to us at salvation when we're redeemed this truth about who he is what he's doing, where he's going. Our salvation and redemption is way more than a one-time event, although it is a one-time event. At the moment, we come to Christ, but it's way more than that. It's a lifelong process of being redeemed. He uses the phrase here, if you notice, in verse 9, the mystery of his will. 
God is revealing to us that God's eternal purpose in the cosmic heavenly realm that has been revealed to us in Christ. It is the mind of God, the plan of God, and the eternal purposes of God about the history of the world, how it all started, how it's all happening, how it's all going to end. In some ways, God has revealed to you and I as believers the secrets of of the world that were at one time hidden and they only can be unlocked when a person comes to Christ and is redeemed. Lastly is the return. Verse 10. To unite all things in him. The redeemed of God see that a new world order is coming. That's part of that wisdom and insight in the mystery of his will. It was a mystery in times past, but he has unlocked it for us in Christ, as I said. But we know there's a time coming. Here's what we know, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then the judgment. That's why you and I do not have to share in the despair that goes on in the world. It is a great privilege of ours. We know the answers to the tests. It brings great comfort to us, the return to unite all things under the lordship of Christ. So as we conclude this morning, I'm going to give you some thoughts to think about. As a redeemed people, God has both made us and bought us. If you think about this, he made us and he bought us, which means we are two times his. He made us, but then we were born into sin, and he had to come back and purchase us in order to make us his once again. Theologians call it twice, twice bought, twice his. This is the praise that we sing. This is the praise song that Paul is speaking of here. The song of the re redeemed. Here's what Revelation 14, 3 says about that song. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except who? The redeemed. So I want to encourage you this morning, no matter where you are spiritually, no matter if you're in great sin or little sin or all in between, whether you're doing well or poorly spiritually, I want to encourage you to sing this song to you because the same truth that saved you is the same truth that will transform you. And here's how our verses that we talked about this morning and last week. Read in the message. Close your eyes, if you would, as I read these over us and we start our so what. Praise be to God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with, and now the verses from the message. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind has settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. Oh, what pleasure he took in planning this. 
He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son because of the sacrifice of the Messiah. His blood poured out on the altar of the cross. Because of that, we're free people, free of penalties and punishments, chalked up by our misdeeds. And not just barely free, abundantly free. He thought of everything. He provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, in him alone. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on the planet. Ask the Lord to help you sing that song to your own heart and to the hearts of other Christ followers. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we are grateful for our redemption. I pray, Lord, you would take this text and these, these verses from 3 to 14 as we continue them next week and we would learn a new message to speak to our own souls, to sing to our own souls, to rejoice in whether we're doing well or poorly. Help us, help us integrate this into our lives in such a way that it changes us from the inside out that we view you differently we view ourselves differently and we view others differently help us to do that with all wisdom and insight grateful that you've let us in on how this whole thing uh, is happening and will end what great comfort that brings both to us individually and as a body we're grateful for your redemption, and everyone said, Amen. Amen.